Our title this morning is called A Call to Invest Ourselves in the Lives of Others. And nothing fancy about it. Um, we're going to just kind of break that down. What does that mean? What does that look like? And hopefully uh, we'll laugh a little bit. Uh, we'll be challenged a little bit. And if one person makes a, a decision to make a change today towards discipleship, it is worth celebrating. And that's my opinion. Now, <clears throat> do we have anybody here that happens to be a follower of the New England Patriots? How about anybody, uh, a follower of the, the Rams? Any followers of Christ? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, you better pass that test. You'd be in trouble, right? So I know you're all excited. It's a lot of fun and games tonight, and uh, we're looking forward to that. I'll, I'll be watching and make my wife watch. We typically don't watch a lot of sports, but uh, we're going to tonight because it's the Super Bowl, and that's what you do. You, you watch the Super Bowl. So uh, I want to just kind of sum up for you a little bit about what we're talking about in discipleship. So the first part of the message this morning, we're going to just kind of break that down. What is the expectation? What does it mean? What are we even talking about? We're going to look at a couple passages of scripture. Uh, the challenge really for, for me is to limit this to a reasonable amount of time. Because uh, I could literally stand up here probably till dinner time and talk to you about discipleship. Uh, I love it. I'm passionate about it. Uh, I've been blessed for probably, what, seven, eight months, Matt, the pastoral staff. We've all been getting together on Thursdays and just studying this topic, digging in, looking at Scripture. And uh, it's just been an enjoyable, enjoyable ride. I am by no means an expert on it. Uh, I've read a lot of books, and I'm learning constantly every week deeper things that I thought I might have known a little bit something about. God's like, no, you don't know nothing yet. So... Uh, something you see frequently around here, and we talk about all the time, you see it on our t-shirts, it's on our, our banner, it's on your bulletin cover, is the phrase becoming and belonging. If you've come to hope for any amount of time, you're familiar with that phrase. And one of the things Pastor Mark has said since the beginning of hope that, that just has resonated with me five years ago when we first started coming resonates with a lot of people is hope is a place where you can come and, and it's, it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way either. We've got to add that tag on, okay? So it's, it's okay to come and be here and be broken. Come as you are. God will accept you. We will accept you. We will love you. But we want God's best for your life as God wants his best for your life. And so we emphasize becoming and belonging a lot, a lot, a lot. You'll see that on posters. You'll see it uh, just about everywhere you can look around hope because we want to be a place where you can belong as part of the body, where you can feel like... Uh, you can be here as you are and where you can be connected and where you can serve and you can find your place in the, in the kingdom and in the church and where you can be part of a family. That's important to us. And the more we become like Christ, the greater we belong to Christ and one another. But one thing we've kind of strayed a little bit away from, and I'll, I'll confess this to you, and, and even in my own personal life, is on the, the last part of that, making disciples. It's not that this is a new DNA or a new teaching or this new idea that we have for hope this time around. It's always been a part of hope, okay? But, but we haven't emphasized it maybe enough. We haven't talked about it enough, and we're going to start doing that a whole lot more. And I'm going to tell you why it's important here in just a minute, but I thought a great way to talk about investing in the lives of others would be this illustration. Now, we are, heads up, get your pens and papers out, guys, two weeks away from Valentine's. Okay, you're aware of that, right? Two weeks out. Uh, now, the go-to for most guys is a delicious meal and flowers, right? 
because women can't get enough of flowers and they love to eat. I guess that's what we think. I don't know. Um, But you'll have all this pressure. And as it gets closer, many of you will be scrambling. It'll be the week of, and you'll be like, I don't have a reservation anywhere. And you'll start calling, and you'll discover nothing is open. Uh, What am I going to do? She's expecting to go out. And you're going to find that if you don't plan now, you're going to suffer later, right? So you don't want to take your wife. Please don't take her to McDonald's unless that's very unique to you guys. But don't show up with a Happy Meal and be like, who loves you, supersize, like that kind of thing. Don't do that. Now, we all have our favorites, but again, this isn't, you know, it's not about you. It's about the person you love, right? And so if it was up to me, I would prepare something like, you know, steak medallions wrapped in bacon. All the guys are like, "Mm mm-hmm, you're preaching now, right? That would be good, or chicken wrapped in bacon or bacon wrapped in bacon. Something like that would be very appealing. Now, some of the things you women like today are not appealing. I'm thankful my wife didn't want them, but some of you like stuff like dried kale. I don't want grass from my mower on my plate, okay? I don't eat stuff like that. Some of you, and men too, you like things like sushi. I'm not going to judge you for that. If you want to eat raw fish, I'm just going to say last week Mark preached about Jesus grilling fish on the fire before serving. But if you want it, like, if I wanted that, I'd go to Lake Hartwell with my father-in-law and be like, pull me up one of them bass. We're going to eat it in a boat together. I don't do that. I don't eat raw fish. But some of you, that might be appealing. So I thought, man, what? Could, and this is a great time of the year because there's such an emphasis on stuff that is good to eat. Right? The diets are over. You're out of January. The New Year, those are gone. Like, we don't care anymore, obviously. (laughs) You know, like, it's uh, okay. I am what I am. We're married. (laughs) You're stuck. And so it's like, we just, we can, we can dig into something really good, really good. And I brought some sanitizer this morning because tis the season, right? And I thought, mm, whoa, we've got to be careful. This thing's heavy. Oh, yeah. Look at this. This is good. This is good. Do I have anybody in the crowd this morning that loves Reese's? I got a few of you. I got a few. I'm going to have you come up here and join me. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You didn't think that was coming, did you? It did. Listen, if you don't know anything about Reese's, you, you probably don't know much about Jesus. Because on the eighth day, after he made Oreos, he made Reese's. Now, my hands are clean. I want you to know that. I just sanitized. I've got utensils here. I ain't going to jack you up or anything. Now, listen. The gospel simply means good news. Right? This is good news. This is gospel. We're getting ready to enter Easter holiday where we celebrate resurrection, but the world has enabled us to also celebrate candy. Do you realize all of our holidays are centered around candy? Valentine's, Halloween, 4th of July. You should have some candy there beside your hamburgers. Anyway, this is good news. Would you agree with that? Yes, I like you a lot. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, oh, look at that. I want you to have that. Go ahead. You can pull off. It's clean for it. Now, I want you, go ahead, enjoy it, go ahead. That's good, right? I'm going to have a little bit myself. Be jealous. I know Matt tried to eat these this week. Too bad, sucker. 
stealing from the gospel. <clears throat> oh, that is so good, isn't it? Now, I can't really see faces up here with the light, but my brother back here in the red shirt right there, his hand went up quick, loud, and proud, didn't it? That's right. Listen, can you do me a favor? I want you to take this. It's in the wrapper still. Here, open your hand. Didn't mean to talk to you like a little baby. That's I talk to my kids that way. All right, clean up because you don't want to like hand this off like dirty or, yeah. I want you to take this. See the guy in the red t-shirt back there? Go give him that for me. Go ahead. Thanks. Now, I have a little bit left here. Yes. Hallelujah. He's been to church. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and finish that up because I can. And then I'm going to drink some coffee. Mm. Goodness sakes, we just had church. Now, thank you so much, sweetie. I appreciate that. Now, you might be thinking, that's ridiculous. What do you think back there? That's pretty good, huh? You got the whole egg, too. You didn't even get a bite. What we do when we follow Christ is we receive the good news. It's not enough to just say, hey, do you want the good news? Do you want it? Are you interested? No, we, we got we to gotta go get them. And we got to bring them in. And we take what we're participating in and we share it with other people. And then we encourage them. You know what? There are other people that want this and that need this. Go, share it with them also. To invest in the life of someone else is a significant thing. And I'm going to tell you something that I think is so important and so huge. Next to salvation, next to heaven and hell, next to choosing Christ versus choosing the world, the most important thing that God would tell you, the most important thing that you should be doing with your life is making disciples. The first thing Jesus said when he went into ministry is he went up to people and said, follow me. I'm going to teach you to make disciples. I'm going to teach you to fish for men. Follow me, and I'll teach you. The first thing he said, the last thing he said, go, make disciples. And throughout his ministry, text after text after text, it's all about following me. It's all about the cost of discipleship. It's all about making disciples. It's all about pushing people away on the fringe that weren't interested in the good news. And going to those that were, those that needed it, and sharing that with other people. It's the thing that identifies us with Christ. I I wrote in my notes, I am not the least bit, the more I study discipleship, not the least bit interested in being identified or being called a Christian. That term is so watered down, and in fact, it originated as a derogatory term in the early church back in Acts. People used it to make fun of people. For following Christ. And I'm, I'm not really interested in that term because everybody claims to be a Christian today. Do you realize that? It, it is amazing to me the number of people, and I'm not here to bash specific people, so I'm not getting into that, but I would much rather be identified as a disciple of Jesus Christ than a Christian. Because a disciple takes on deeper, weightier meaning. It's impossible to be a disciple a follower of someone, and not end up like that person. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So we can't follow him 
truly follow him and not be like him. Yet, somehow, the church today in America has managed, has managed to establish Christianity as a means of taking on a name, but not a life, not a change. Being able to say, well, I will identify with Christ. I will call myself a Christian. I will say that, yes, that is God's son. And yes, I want to go to heaven. I'll do all that, but I'm not interested in him being fully God and Lord in my life and having to say and changing me radically. I just kind of want to add that to my life. Francis Chan, one of my favorite pastors and authors, said in his book, Multiply, this would be like Jesus walking up to the first disciples and saying, hey, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me in some way? Don't worry. I don't actually care if you do anything. You don't have to leave your nets. You don't have to quit, you know, collecting taxes and all this other stuff. I'm not looking for any kind of changes like that. I just want people that are willing to say they believe in me and call themselves Christians. We would say that's ludicrous. Jesus did the exact opposite of that. Yet somehow that's what we've kind of drifted into in this form of Christianity in America. And so when we look at this concept of a call to invest ourselves in the lives of others, when Mark and I were talking about what topics are we going to cover in these two weeks, I started thinking about that word invest and what it means. And to invest means to make a deposit into something, to uh, dedicate, to allocate, to give, to spend, to spend ourselves, if you will, into the life of someone else. Now, our culture dictates to us that we don't make investments unless we know what the return on that investment is going to be, right? The ROI, that is, that is the bottom line that everyone wants to know. If I give money in my 401k so that when I'm 65 I can suck jello down a straw, I want to know that there's going to be enough money there for me to buy the flavors I want, right? Hopefully none of us are just like, oh yeah, they're just taking money each month. I don't, I'm not even going to look at it until I'm 60, you know, and someday I'll, I'll worry about all that. Now when we invest in something, we want to know what we're investing in. We want to know what we're getting out of that. When we go to a car lot, you pick out a car, you want to know what you're giving your money towards. What kind of vehicle are you going to get out of that exchange? That's, that's the case for everything. And so, when it comes to people, we're really no different. We are, we are curious as to what the return on that investment. And we make friendships, we make relationships within the church based on that ROI. What is the return on my investment? If I give my time to this person, if I pour into this couple, if I give up this part of my life and put it over here in this person's life, what is going to come back to me as a result of that? And this is the kicker. Just bear with me for a moment. This is the kicker. The return on our investment in people is not dependent on those people, but rather solely on Jesus Christ. We invest in people even when on the surface it doesn't pay off. I'm reminded in Scripture where Jesus said, Our Heavenly Father sees what is done even in secret, but someday will reward us openly in heaven. Why is that truth there important about the return on our investment? Because the very first time we invest in somebody and they do us wrong, they betray our confidence, they selfishly never ask about us, all they do is take, take, take in a conversation and just drain you mentally and emotionally. They don't show up and follow through. You've been working with them for weeks and pouring your life into them and encouraging them and 
They just don't follow anything you say, and every time the phone rings, all they want to do is dump on you, and you've been pouring into them, pouring into them, and they just, they're not responding to everything. Our initial thing is to be like, well, this investment is not worth my time no more, and we move on, right? Or we put serious boundaries in place, and I'm not moving on, but I'm just going to be back here at a distance kind of thing. And this challenges me because I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of hours in my life, pouring into people as best I am able to, as God gives me opportunity. And I would tell you, by and large, overwhelmingly, probably 60-75% of people take advantage of that. Very, very few is it a 50-50 give and take. I care about you, what's going on in your life, Travis. How are your, your children? How's your wife? How's your life? Very few friendships do I have are like that. Most of them are just, this is my issue, fix it, and just take, 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 take. But this is the kicker. The investment that I'm making in their life is not based on what they give me. The investment I'm making is because my life is so short and their life is so short that someday there is a God who's observing what I'm investing my time and my life into. And he's going to see that and he's either going to say, well done, you did great work, I'm proud of you, now here is your reward, or it's going to be sadly the opposite. That's huge. It's huge that we grasp that. So I put some quotes in your bulletin. I know you're thinking, man, you're not even into the quotes yet. Where are we going? Stay with me. We're going to get through this quick. So these are some powerful quotes of some powerful theologians and pastors that I think really kind of capture the idea of discipleship. Billy Graham uh, said this, salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything that we have. Diedrich Bonhoeffer great theologian from Germany that was executed concentration camp, said Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. A.W. Tozer said only a disciple can make a disciple. And Jenny Allen said when we truly love people, discipleship will pour out of us. So I want to give you just the expectation that Christ has. I want to show you scripture, what he says. And this is just one of, again, I could show you passage after passage after passage, but I want you to capture, capture the weight of what Christ says here as far as the expectation on discipleship so that we understand it when we get into our narrative this morning. In Luke chapter 14, follow along with me, verse 25 in the gospel, the scripture says this, now great crowds had accompanied him And he turned to them. So here's Jesus walking around. These massive crowds are just all around him. Everyone's excited because Jesus is making life better. He's making the sick healthy again. And he's feeding the poor. And he's making stuff occur out of thin air that they've never seen before. He's bringing the dead back to life. And that's exciting because he's doing stuff for people. And people want that. But Jesus, knowing that, he's not interested in a bunch of people on the fringe that are there because of what he can do for them. He wants people that are all in for him. So he sees this massive crowd and he turns to them and says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives this analogy for Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and meets and asks for terms of peace. And then verse 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a tough, tough passage. And on the surface, we can look at it and say, is Jesus talking about some suicidal ideation here? You've know, you, you got to hate your own life. You've got to give up your own life. He's saying that anything in this world, even your closest relationships, the things that we should value more than anything else, your mom, your dad, your spouse, your son, your daughter, if your love for me is not so great that by comparison your love for them looks like hatred, you can't follow me. He's saying, I'm either going to be extremely significant and important and supreme in every area of your life, or I'm not, and you can't be my disciple. See, there's, there's a reason he goes on in other portions of Scripture and says, someday in heaven there's going to be throngs of people that say, Lord, Lord, in your name, didn't I do these things? Didn't I get the t-shirt? Didn't I attend hope? Didn't I serve on a volunteer basis? Didn't I, you know, have that bumper sticker? And I was part of this ministry and I did all these things. And he's going to look at him and say, leave me. I never knew you. There are a lot of people in a lot of churches today that think because they prayed a prayer and acknowledged that Jesus is the son of God and died on a cross that they're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And that's not the case. And that's a hard teaching. Believe me, it's a hard teaching. But it is not enough to do those things. The Bible says that even demons tremble and acknowledge that he's the Son of God. If we do not fall at his feet and surrender our life fully and say, I am yours, you are my teacher, you are my leader, you are my supreme authority. I want to learn from you and I want to go and teach other people to surrender fully and learn from you. And I want to teach them to teach other people to go and surrender and make you fully king in their life. If we are not doing that, then we are not disciples of Christ. That's what the text says. It's hard. You'll never find Jesus saying, come and identify with me as a Christian. (laughs) You'll never find Jesus saying, I want you to be okay with the things I'm teaching. He's always about calling you to discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. The expectation is heavy. So I want to define real quick what I mean by discipleship. And this is really important because if you've been anywhere around the church for any length of time, you've got a perception or idea of what discipleship is based on your past experiences or what a church has said or what you've you know encountered or, or been taught. And, and I want us to be on the same page of what we mean biblically Scripture teaches here at Hope regarding what discipleship is. And, and I want to start by telling you what discipleship is not. Okay, discipleship is not a class, right? I have hated the term discipleship for years, which is sad to say, but that's just me being honest because I am not about going and sitting in a class and just soaking up and doing a bunch of courses on Old Testament survey and New Testament survey, and now i got to go knock on some stranger's door and say, if you die tonight, you know where you're going to spend eternity. That does not appeal to me in the slightest, in the least. It it makes me uncomfortable. That might be your experience and your joy. That is not my joy. But understand something. Discipleship in Scripture is not about attending a class. 
It's not about education. It's not about learning a bunch of facts and details so we can assimilate that and share it with other people. Discipleship is not about going on missions trips. Discipleship is not about a reference to evangelism. Evangelism is important. Sharing the gospel is essential. You can't disciple if someone doesn't know Christ. But discipleship is not about evangelism. And lastly, discipleship is not a calling that God gives you. It's not uh, something that you get a choice in. If you are a follower of Christ, you will be a disciple. And if you are not a disciple who makes disciples, then you are not a follower of Christ. There is no, that's not my calling, those aren't my gifts, I'm not talented in that way. I know you, you know, you can share the Reese's, but that's just not my thing. I'm a behind the scenes kind of person. I'd much rather just love and let somebody else, sorry, that excuse will not hold up with Christ. He expects you, if you're going to follow him, to make disciples. So what do we mean? Discipleship is simply this. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. It's a standard of living. It's a routine. It's the things that define us. There are very specific characteristics in this lifestyle that should separate us as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it. Discipleship is a way of living life. It's not something that you do. It's something that you be. And to me, that is extremely, extremely freeing. Extremely freeing. Because I don't want one more thing to do. <laughs> I get tired by doing stuff. My, my plate is full. But when we shift that perspective and say, this is not about something I do and I've got to check the boxes. I went out for an hour on Thursday, boom, I did it. And we change it into incorporating into our DNA of this is something I am. And out of that being, things happen. For the follower of Christ, I, I've combed through scriptures. I've read books, as I've said. I've talked with pastoral staff. We've, we've studied it. We've broken it down. We've looked. We always keep coming back. What is the model? What does scripture say? What does Christ say? I think there are three. I'm going to give you four this morning, but I think there are three fundamental elements, characteristics of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the first one is this. That disciple's lifestyle will be marked by agape love, unconditional love. I'm not talking about, you know, saying nice things to people. I'm not talking about, you know, always smiling, being friendly. I'm talking about an authentic love that says, regardless of what you do, I care about you. You matter to me, not because of what you have to offer me, not because of how great you are, not because of your connections. I simply love you because you exist and God delighted in making you. And that love is not based on what you do or don't do, how you hurt me or don't hurt me. Does that mean we don't have emotions anymore? Absolutely not. Of course we're still going to get hurt. Of course we're still going to have preferences and things that we desire from one another. But our love is not based off of what people do or don't do. We've got to love. And part of love is just enjoyment. It's just relationship. I can honestly say I enjoy hanging out with Matthew. I do. I love him as a brother in Christ and there's never a time when I'm like, dang it, here comes Matt. He's after my Reese's again. <laughs> there's never a time in that. Why? Because I, I believe God has gifted me, by God's grace alone, agape love in my heart for Matt, so that when I see him, even if I know he's frustrated or frust I'm frustrated, there's not this, oh, dang it, it's Matt. Agape love. 
You should be able to have fun. You should be able to laugh. You should be able to talk about things like the Super Bowl and what your, your daughter pooped out last night in her diaper and, you know, how you blew it on Valentine's Day and on and on and on I could go. Like, that's part of life. It's enjoying relationship. It's enjoying the space you're in. It's laughing. It's sharing. It's, have you heard this? Have you seen this video? It's hilarious. Have, did you hear what so-and-so? It's sharing life and it's anchored around genuine, unconditional agape love, first modeled by Christ towards us. The second thing is serving. Serving. You cannot get around this concept in Scripture. You may not like the volunteer thing, and you might be like, ah, why do they always want people to do stuff? Listen, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, serves. Christ himself, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that made everything, Paul tells us in Philippians, humbled himself like a slave, like a servant. He came to serve others, not to be served himself. We see at the Last Supper, the night before he's died, what does he do? He gets down and takes on the worst job in the, in the entire known world at that time, that of a slave that washes the feet of others. The most disgusting job you can have, and Christ says, yeah, I want that. You cannot be a follower of Christ if you don't serve other people. Remember Peter? Well, well, Lord, if that's the case, wash my whole body then. Let's get this done. I, I need to get this experience fully because I love you so much and I don't want to miss out on that. We can't escape this element of service. And then the third part, and this is probably the most challenging part, but it is essential for a disciple of Christ, and that is this. We challenge each other to obey Scripture. You have got to be in the Word if you are a follower and disciple of Christ. I'm not talking about daily bread. I'm not talking about small group format. I'm not talking about your five minutes here or you got to read through the Bible this year as your plan. I'm talking about just you spending time in the Bible, whatever that looks like, and using what Christ is teaching you to challenge people you're discipling to obey. Now, it's no secret I'm okay with tattoos, right? If you're surprised by that, that surprises me. Uh, I have a couple of them. There is one tattoo that, ha- that I don't have it, but every time I've seen it, I think, man, that is the stupidest tattoo in the world. Why do people get that? It's simply this. It's a tattoo that says, only God can judge me. <laughs> That's the stupidest thing in the world. Now, if you have that, you should look into a cover-up. If they can't cover it up, you should put, like, at the end, JK or LOL or something like that, you know? One, you don't want God judging you. <laughs> Can I just say that? Like, if you're living in such a way that God's going to judge you harshly for that, you might want to address that and not depend on a little cop-out slogan to get you out of some significant consequences. Secondly, it's a load of doo-doo. I get to judge you. You may not like that, but tough. Too bad. God expects me to judge you and you to judge me. Man, it got quiet in here. That means I'm doing something good in Scripture. God expects us to hold each other accountable to his standards. This nonsense of, well, you know, we're not supposed to judge one another. That's a load of crap. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. That is a lie. That is a lie because then what we do is we don't have to dig in deep and wrestle with do I obey or not obey. We just kind of sit back and and we're comfortable then. And Christ says, no, sharpen one another. Does this get messy? Yes. 
True, authentic discipleship will be so messy, you're constantly going to have to go to the person discipling you or to a pastor or some some uh, spiritual strong giant in your life, a man or a woman of God, and say, hey, what do I do here? And allow them to dig into the scripture and text with you. And yes, it will get messy, but yes, we are to hold each other accountable according to scripture. And so we open up the word with one another and we say, what does God say for me as a husband, as a man, as uh, a, a son, as a father? What are his expectations as, as an employee? How should I be living my life? And we wrestle with that. And scripture says this. And so, okay, I've got to be obedient. And if I'm not obedient as a brother or sister in Christ, you better say to me, hey, you're disobeying Christ and you're a follower of his. And I'll tell you, I've... I've tried my best to practice this. I'll give you two examples without specifics this last year where I've had to have very hard conversations with people that aren't following this book. And one of two things happens every time. They will either walk away like the rich young ruler and say that's too much a cost. I don't want to pay that. I'm not going to acknowledge my sin. I'm not going to address it. I'm going to just push it under the rug. I'm going to say you have a different perspective of mine and they'll break fellowship and they'll push away from you. And they'll give an account for that to Christ. Or I've seen the second thing happen, which is amazing. When you confront people and they say, wow, you love me enough to say that to me? I need to repent of this. I need to make this right with God. And I've seen that relationship go from pretty good to amazingly strong. Now, there's so much more I could say on this point as far as us being gracious and loving and compassionate towards one another. But make no mistake about it. We are called to have agape love, to serve, and to be in the scriptures challenging one another. And then the last thing I was going to tell you is repeat it. After you get those three things done, that person should be going out and doing the same three things with other people. Disciples making disciples making disciples. It will cost you everything. It will cause you to give up stuff you love, things that you find enjoyable. That's why he says take up your cross. You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through suffering. You're going to be made fun of. People are going to think your priorities are off and that you don't know what true happiness and living is all about. But you have to love God more than anything in this world if you're going to be a disciple. Now I want to get into my text. It's going to be real quick and then we're out of here. This story, this narrative is so beautiful to me. It's the story in the garden, the story after Christ died. We're in John chapter 20. I want to read the text. I'm going to read quick, so you listen quick, and we're going to get through this, okay? John 20, 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, who is John, and they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. You know Simon Peter's going in, right? Because you know that's, he's a bull in a china shop. Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, now lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead, and then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, 
I don't have time this morning to give you the full narrative here, but if you read all the gospel accounts, you'll see the complete picture of everything that was taking place this morning. So it's not just this, Mary. There are three women that leave and depart Jerusalem while it is still pitch black outside. I've tried to imagine what it's like for them. Their hearts heavy with grief. I mean, just absolute despair and brokenness. The one that they thought was the Son of God, the one they put all their trust and hope in, had just died, was just brutally beaten and mocked and ridiculed and shamed and embarrassed and tortured and mutilated and died before them. And they saw the Son of God, literally, who brought men back to life, fall limp and die, taking his last breath. They saw him wrapped in a, in a shroud and, and taken into a tomb and buried there. And the seal and the giant stone put on top of it and rolled in front of it. And the, and the soldiers placed there to guard it. And all of these memories and emotions and everything just raw. I'm sure their nerves are just on fire with grief and hurt and pain and it's pitch black and they're traveling across the cobblestones in the the early morning hours in Jerusalem to make their way out of the city to the garden with spices in their hands, not knowing how they're going to anoint the body of Christ, but knowing we've got to do something. We can't just sit in our grief. We've, We've got to get to him somehow and Maybe we'll figure out a way with the soldiers that Scripture will teach in other Gospels that shortly before they get there, at dawn, there was an earthquake and the ground just began to rumble. Can you imagine what that was like as the ground rumbled and the tomb rolled away and angels appeared and Christ stepped forth and said, I'm back, baby! Woo! What a morning that was! Can you imagine the guards fell as if dead before Him? Of course they did because you can't stand in the glory of the Son of God. And the angels, I'm sure, were just like, it's my king right there coming out of the tomb. And here come these women, these godly, gracious women of God that have no clue. And they show up in the garden. As I read that text, I'm, I'm imagining what it was like. You know, it's, it's kind of like when you get that phone call, if you've ever gotten one and you're told so-and-so's had a heart attack or someone you love's been in a car accident and, and you just respond. You don't really know what to do or who to talk to or, but you just go. You get your keys and you go and Mary gets to the garden and she, she sees that the tomb is open and her first thought is, oh my goodness, someone has stolen his body. She's in a panic. She doesn't know what to do. She hasn't discovered he's risen. She hasn't encountered him. She just thinks someone's stolen him. And so she takes off and sprints back to Jerusalem. Peter, John, they've stolen his body. I have no idea where it is, but it's gone. It's gone. They've taken him. Peter and John jump up. They can't believe it. They take off running. Peter's probably like me, a little bit stout, so he's a little bit slower, and John sprints on ahead, it says, and he gets there, and John just sees the tomb, and he stands back in disbelief. Their brokenness takes on a deeper just anger, probably, of it's bad enough they butchered him, but now they've stolen his body. Peter shows up, <sighs> looks in the tomb, sees a folded cloth. And then John goes in and sees it. And John recalls the words that he would rise from the dead. And they take off and they go back to tell the other disciples what has happened. Shortly after that, Mary had run back to the tomb again with these two because Scripture tells us after they came out, the two angels appeared to Mary and said, what are you doing looking here for the dead? Don't you remember Jesus said he would rise again? 
what a moment when Mary sees Jesus and thinks he's the gardener and says, Sir, could you please tell me if you've taken his body, where you put him? And he simply says, Mary. And she knows. She knows it's Jesus and falls at his feet and says, Rabboni, teacher, master, what a moment. It is the stupidest way to rig a resurrection story. You know why? Because a woman's word is never acceptable in court in their culture. That Christ would appear to Mary first and say, I have risen, now go tell everybody. That's how I know it's true because it doesn't make sense. Only Christ could do this. And so I want to tell you just five, five quick things. I'm not even going to break it down for you. What Mary does as a disciple. Number one, ready? She ran and reported to those that God put in her life. She didn't get on a plane, didn't fly around the world, didn't start knocking on doors, looking for strangers. Where can I disciple? Who can I tell about Jesus? She simply went to those that God put in her life. You and I are all placed in very different, very unique situations. Discipleship is about going to those that God has already put into your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friendships. Going to those around you. Number two, she told what she knew even though she didn't know much of anything. That's a lot of us when it comes to discipleship. Don't buy into the lie that I've got to be able to talk through the exegesis of eschatology before I can discipleship someone. Don't buy into the lie that I've got to go through the entire New Testament and understand everything in the Greek and get all that before I can disciple somebody. You tell what you know and you allow the Holy Spirit and God and Scripture and whoever's discipling you to fill in the gaps. And you grow as they grow. Don't buy into the lie that you're not capable of discipling someone. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. You tell what you know and you trust God for the rest. Number three, she led them to the last place she encountered Christ. She said, look, this is where he had come. Come to where he was. That, that's all you've got to do is gather and say, look, I don't know a lot, but I know this is where I encountered Christ. Look what he said to me in Scripture. Fourthly, Then Peter and John came and believed, and then they repeated it. They went back and told the other disciples. It's that simple. Discipleship is about making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing, chapter 1, 35 through 37 of John says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Scripture says the two disciples heard him say this, and they took off and followed Jesus. It wasn't about John. It was about, okay, I've been discipling you. Now go, follow, take it to the next level. I love this passage. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2, You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. It's, I'm teaching you so you can teach them so they can teach those. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. If we are not a disciple of Jesus Christ who's making disciples that makes disciples, we are not following Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Walk with me. Lifestyle. Let's do this thing together. So I'm ending with this illustration. I'm going to have the, the crew, if they bring up the lights for me. I want, I want you to see the power of this. I want you to see the power of this. 
So I'm going to start. I'm going to start with an easy one. Matt, I'm going to have you come up here with me. Where's my Reese's brother in the back there? Yeah, come on up with me. And I'm going to take my girl down here again. Oh, dang it. I know. You'll forgive me later because you're a gracious girl, I can tell. All right? So you'll see a pattern. Now, it's not exclusive, but you'll see a pattern in Scripture of threes coming together. Daniel took three, poured into them. Christ had 12, but then out of that 12, he had three that he got really intimate. Interestingly enough, if you study any social sciences or anything like that, they'll tell you at most you can pour into three to six people, like fully give your life to three to six people at a time. Outside of that, it's very surfacy. I won't break all that down for you, but I'm just going to start with three. Okay, so this is kind of what, what happens. Christ comes and he, he, he calls and he says, come to me if you're willing to follow. And people respond. Now, in this case, you didn't really have a lot of choice because I singled you out. But you came. And so th- this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like each of you, anyone you want, go find three people and bring them back. Go. Three people, anywhere you want. <clears throat> See, when Christ calls, he doesn't just call to say, hey, come out and hang with me, Jesus and then that's it. He has a bigger picture in mind. And, and sometimes we can get... Did you get your family? That's props. A lot of times our family needs to be called. <clears throat> but Christ doesn't, Christ doesn't just call us to kind of stay isolated. He, he wants us to go out and to call others in. He wants us to move beyond our comfort zone and beyond just what the enemy would have us stay to accomplish something even greater. All right, now, real quick, I want each of you to go get two more people. I know, I know. It's the Reese's. It'll kill you. Two more people, all of you. Go get two more people for me. Now, when Christ set this up, Christ chose 12 followers. One of them was a betrayer. These men were not educated outside of their initial Hebrew teaching when they were younger. He didn't go out and choose the most dynamic business owners, tax collectors, individuals in town that were the influencers and the dynamic, talented people. He chose 12 ordinary men and said, I want you to follow me for three years. I'm going to pour myself into your life, and then I'm going to send you out into the world. Now, you see this crowd up here. I want you to see the power of discipleship firsthand. Look how quickly we went from me with three just by me saying, you go get two or three more. You go get two or three more. And then those two or three went and got two or three more, two or three more. Can you imagine how radically different Hope Fellowship, I'm not talking about Anderson, I'm not talking about the world, I'm not talking about Clemson, Anderson University, Hope Fellowship, this gathering, can you imagine how radically different this gathering of people would be if we discipled this way? Can you see how quickly and radically change would take place if this group of people, if just this group, let's say none of the rest of you bought in and just this many people at Hope said, you know what, I'm going to begin to love unconditionally with agape love. I'm going to begin to serve my brothers and sisters here that are part of this group. We're going to serve each other. And if anyone has a need, I'm going to do everything I can to meet that need. I don't care what it takes. I will serve unconditionally. And you know what else we're going to do? We're going to open the scriptures and we're going to share what God is teaching and God is saying. And we're going to be moved and we're going to be challenged and we're going to make decisions that are uncomfortable but we're going to be different because of it it doesn't matter what the rest of you think can you imagine the power of this group much less if the rest of you were part of the next group that they collected and doubled again and doubled again 
All right, you guys can go sit down. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I've got one last thing I want to show you, and then I'm praying, and we're done. The power of discipleship. I've put some questions at the bottom of your bulletin, and I, I want you, there's no embarrassment in this, and just to set it up to show you there's no embarrassment, I'll start with embarrassing myself first, okay? Been, as I've said, around the church my whole life, I've pastored in just about every context you can pastor in. Uh, I've told you how I felt about the word discipleship for most of my life because of what it's meant. It wasn't until about two, two and a half years ago that someone came up to me and said, who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Are you intentional in this area? And I had to honestly say, wow, nobody. Yeah, I'm meeting with people, encouraging people. I'm part of small groups and stuff like that, but I'm not intentionally discipling or being discipled. That, that was a hard thing to admit as someone that opens the word and is teaching you guys about this stuff. So... I want you to be as honest as you can when you look at these questions. How many of you, and I want you to raise your hand high so I can see it, okay? This is crowd participation. How many of you are currently being discipled by someone in your life? How many? Raise your hands tall. I'm I'm talking about these elements. Agape tall. Let me see them tall. All right, so I would say, well, maybe a quarter, maybe 20, 25% would say that I'm practicing agape love, serving, and I'm in the scripture on a regular basis being challenged to obey. Now, second question. How many of you are making a disciple and teaching them to make disciples? Raise your hands high on that one. Look around. I can roughly count, but maybe 10 tops. That is in no way a judgment on you. Because as I said, I was there as well. How different would our church look And as a result, our community ultimately. But if we, as the body of Christ, could just start saying, I am going to not only submit myself to discipleship, but I'm going to make disciples. I left you with one last question. You don't have to do it. I'm not going to embarrass you again. I've already done that enough. But just something to challenge you with, because it it challenged me as I thought about it, and I'm going to try it this week for myself. But evaluate your own life. One of the biggest things that drives us in life is entertainment. I love me, lately I've loved me some docu-series, true crime stories. I'm just fascinated by how the human mind works and how behavior science works, and part of that's my my job, but I'm fascinated by that, and so I love docu-series. I will watch those, like, all the time if I get a chance. I love Spotify. I get in the car, the first thing I do is make sure my phone's synced up. I call my wife because she doesn't like it when I don't check in because she's a loving wife and she cares about me. But I make sure my Spotify's going so that when she says, okay, I'll talk to you later, click, hang up, boom, my music kicks in and me and Bon Jovi are going down the road. Don't hate, don't hate, all right? So I love my entertainment. I love it. I'd be a lying hypocrite if I told you I didn't. I love, tonight I'm going to love watching the Super Bowl. But I want to challenge you. Culture is all about entertainment. It's all about keeping us going, right? Just evaluate your life. How much time do we invest in discipleship on a weekly basis versus entertainment? Now, I know in the group that I do discipleship with, this is going to be a fun question when we all get together. But I I trust we'll be honest and really just kind of look at our life and say, am I really pouring myself into the lives of other people? Am I truly investing or am I just going through the motions? I, I real quick, I, I, I spent a minute, literally like a minute, just writing down names that popped in my head through Scripture of people that invest in the lives of others. I, 
I thought Christ did with Adam in the garden. Every day they'd go for walks and talks, and Christ would teach him things, and he would invest in them. Abraham and Lot, Moses and Joshua, Naomi and Ruth, Jonathan and David, Mordecai and Esther, John and Andrew, Andrew and Peter, certainly Jesus. We'd go on and on with Jesus' list. Ananias and Barnabas invested in Paul. Paul invested in countless men and women, Aquila, Priscilla, Timothy, Titus, on and on and on we could go. You see this pattern everywhere of investing in someone, investing in someone, investing in someone. If you don't know where to start, talk to me. Email me here through the church office. Say, hey, I want to get started in discipleship. Where can I start? How can I do that? I would be glad to, to point you in the right direction, give you some, some insights and some things that could be an encouragement to you and help you get started in that. What I really would encourage you to do, if you're not being discipled, look around you. There are a lot of people available in just this space. Put somebody on the spot and say, hey, I know just by observing, you're an older, more mature Christian than I am. Would you disciple me? Would you teach me what it means to be a follower of Christ and encourage me to make other disciples? But don't just let this go. I'm not going to let it go. You're going to hear a lot more. You just dread when Travis gets up to speak. <laughs> How great would it be if Christ, I mean, just pops in my head, but if Christ wrote us a letter like he did the other churches in Revelation and said, you know, I have some things against you, but one thing I love about you is you practice discipleship beautifully. You love each other well, you serve unconditionally, and you put a strong emphasis on Scripture. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We're going to sing and be done. Father God, as sincerely as I possibly can say, I, I, I really do mean what I said earlier. If just one person in here begins to truly seek discipleship, to not only become an authentic disciple of you, but to make other disciples, to me that is worth it. You literally changed this planet with 12 ordinary people. What could you do in our world today, 2019, with a church this size if we got on board with that same calling? It encourages me and just pumps me up to dream and to think about that thought, Father, but I would be a hypocrite if I, if I didn't ask for help in my own life because I know I struggle. I struggle with how people treat me and respond to me. I struggle with having to pour myself out into other people. I, I have things that pull on my time and attention and I have to make choices and I don't like letting people down and it is tough, it's tough, it's messy, it's complicated, but it's beautiful because it's what you set in motion. This is your plan. And I would ask that Prayerfully, I have been faithful in communicating your plan for the church, that we would be disciples who make disciples, that we would invest in other people, that we would serve and love unconditionally and open the scriptures and, and just see what it is you're teaching us and how you want us to live our life. If we need to make a change, may we make it this morning. Don't let us put off what we need to do today because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. see you face to face. May we be found faithful. May you 
welcome us as your followers, your disciples, your sons and daughters, that we're obedient to you. I pray this in the name that matters above all names, Jesus Christ.